Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 2 is where we're going to start. Ezra chapter 2. As you pull those things out, let me just say we had a, a women's event here called Flourish uh, Friday night, and it was, uh, by all accounts, all the ladies that went just said it was amazing God showed up. Ladies, if you haven't done one of those Flourish events, it's a great way to start to connect other ladies in the church, get to know them a little bit, uh, and then God's Word was taught. It was a great time, and apparently the food was, uh, was pretty good, too, from what I hear on that. Uh, one more thing is um, thank you for praying for me. Uh, I had surgery this week on my ears. Uh, for many of you who don't know, I've had uh, uh, been wrestling with being deaf over the last uh, three and a half, four months uh, from an infection that I had. And so uh, it, God is using that. I can hear just a little bit out of my left ear now. So praise God for that. And it's, uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, thanks for your prayers on that. And uh, so as we get going, welcome to week three of our series, Reclaim. We get that name from the book of Ezra because it's about reclaiming what has been lost. That's what reclaim means, reclaiming the physical ground that was taken from the Jewish people and more importantly, reclaiming the spiritual ground that we had lost to the enemy too as God's people. Now, here's the thing as we study the Bible, we always want to study it in context, like where it's at, how does it relate, what's the story about. That's important uh, to the context, what we're doing here in this book, but the thing we always want to listen for is the voice of God speaking to us individually. Now, the voice of God will come in a couple of different ways as we read, as we've looked at prophecy, how it's fulfilled, and see God's people and how it relates to the gospel and the reaction of what people do or don't do in Scripture. Uh, we see his character start to emerge from these words. We understand who God is and what he is saying, not only to those people, but to us. And what is really key is to understand that when God speaks, he speaks at two levels. And here's what I mean. He speaks to the group, God's people, right? Like here, God is speaking to the group in these, these Hebrews, and he is speaking to individuals. So he's going to speak to all of us, but he's going to speak to you through his Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at how the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, rouses, stirs the spirit of the Persian King Cyrus to not only let the Hebrew people leave, but to give them money and resources to go and rebuild the temple of God. This is amazing because Jerusalem, the temple, is all destroyed. That stirring uh, in Cyrus from the Spirit of God, stirring Cyrus's spirit, is done by the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. And over and over again, we saw how God roused, stirred the spirit of thousands to pe of people, his people, to do his bidding. And I want you to see uh, that through God, God speaks to this group. We never just hear God in a vacuum. We hear him as part of the bigger group of God's people, right? We're never just alone in hearing God. The Holy Spirit of God is always stirring individuals, yes, but he's also not just speaking to individuals, but to the body. And that's important to understand in context. And 
Something so key about this, I really want us to get down, is God does this stirring, right? But when we see him stirring the group, something really amazing starts to happen. The impossible begins to occur. This is important. In this case, a year before chapter 2 of Ezra, there was absolutely no reason to think that the Babylonian king would ever let the Hebrew people go much less be sent out by a proclamation of the king. And on top of that, to give them the money and the resources to pull it off. Now, I think about this on top of that, their pagan neighbors were giving the Hebrews money to do it. And as we begin the series or the talk today, here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Here's the question. The question has two parts. Ask yourself this. One, Will you act when you sense God telling you to go or do something? Like, will you take a step of faith? Because here's the deal. God may be stirring something deep inside you that God wants you to act on. But as you look around you right now, you don't see how in the world it would ever be possible with your situation as it stands right now. I mean, if you think about money or ability uh, or opportunity, uh, you just don't see how it would be even possible to take this move on what God is stirring in you. But you hear this stirring, and I could hear this thought process because it's similar to mine that first week of Bentry. You're thinking, sure, I guess, but then you're thinking, I just don't see it happening the way things stand at present. Okay, okay, that's the first question. Second part of the question, until your opportunity arrives, will you work on everything that you can work on? By the way, that would be you. We call that waiting on God, like you prepare yourself for the opportunity when God does bring that, uh, that opportunity right. So, so on the day that God gives the green light, the thumbs up, you're ready to take action. So two questions together. One, will you act when you sense God telling you to go or do something? And two, until that opportunity arises, will you work on everything that you can work on to prepare yourself for the move of God when it comes up? Got that down? Let's go to God in prayer and open up our time. Mm, God, our Father in heaven, we seek you. We want to know you, Holy Spirit. Our prayer is that you would just open these words of life in the Bible, fill us to capacity, Lord. I know that there are people that have this stirring in this place and just want to be ready to reclaim lost spiritual ground. God, show us as a group, but show us as individuals how we can be ready. Jesus, you have reclaimed the ultimate ground. You have defeated sin. You've paid our price. You've reclaimed us by giving us your life. Jesus, we are thankful for you being our Lord, for you being our Savior. Help us to grow in your spirit and know that what he is doing in the group and each one of us is changing hearts. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we all prayed and said, amen. 
70 years they had been gone from the land God had promised their ancestors, the Holy Land. The Hebrews had kept their culture together, relatively so, at least somewhat. But make no mistake, Babylon was not their home. But it kind of was. They were in a foreign land. This is not their home, but it kind of was. And yet most of the Hebrews had grown up in captivity. Uh, Babylon felt like home. They knew it well. It was a prosperous land. Besides, the only thing they knew from the old land was stories from the very old folks who went on and rattled on about the old ways. And they had been kids when they had left. There were no pictures, no things, just stories. They had been a captive people, but it had not been like in Egypt when they were slaves making bricks. It had not been like that. By all accounts, their lives had not been that bad. They had tried to practice their religion, but the central part of their communication, their interaction with God was through the temple at Jerusalem, which had been destroyed now for 70 years. And by all accounts, the travelers from Jerusalem area that would come by would say, look, it's just a wasteland. There's nothing there. You don't want to go. But they had this stirring, right? This stirring from, the God, uh, from God. Their spirit had been roused by the Spirit of God. A year before theirs, there had absolutely been no possibility of ever going back to their homeland. But what a difference a year makes, right? A new king, and he's funding whoever wants to go back, he's going to pay for it. A year. I want you to get this picture because right at the heart of our question today, uh, they had this stirring from God, but there was no way to act on that stirring. But now the journey was here. They could go. The question is, who would go? Like, are you going to take that first step of step of faith across the desert? This is a huge journey here. Are you actually going to put some sandal leather and walk across the desert to do what you've been talking about doing now the trip is not going to be easy for these guys it would have to take four to five maybe six months of walking six days a, a week resting on the sabbath and that wasn't just men it was Women and men and children and old folks and babies and the procession of thousands of people carrying all their household goods, some walking, some riding on camels, some in carts, some on uh, donkeys. You get the picture. And maybe this is just too simple a point for you, but I want you to get this. Like you might think, Paul, we know this, but you don't have to. I, I want you to write this down. I want you to put this in your heart. Write this down. Obedience to God's call begins in the heart, but is proven by the action we take. Obedience to God's call begins in the heart, but it is proven, it is demonstrated by the action we take. In other words, Obedience to God starts in the heart, but it, if it only stays there, it doesn't actually get you moving, right? Then it's disobedience if it just stays in your heart. Because I don't know about you, I can hear God's call and be like, sure, God, that sounds good, that sounds great, but right now there's just no way to do it. Like you explain to God why he's wrong. That's a bad idea, by the way. But when you figure it all out, God, you just get back to me and I'll be ready. 
Like, in my mind, it's easy to follow Jesus and be his disciple. But then when Jesus says, I want you to start doing this particular thing I've called you to do, I've got a decision to make. Will I follow him or not? Or just do I let it stay a warm feeling in my heart? You with me? Will I follow him? Is it all talk or am I a real disciple? Now, this is where the term talk is cheap comes from. For these Hebrews that have had this stirring, now they stand at the edge of a desert. Will they face the journey? Will they do it? And hey, listen, sometimes, sometimes even before we get the thing God is asking us to do, we have some hard stuff that happens to us first. These people are called to go back to rebuild the temple. That's the stirring, but what do they have to do first? They've got to walk across a desert for four to six months. How are you doing? Well, they do it. They go back. They take that first step and the second and the third and the 10,000th step. And you can tell these guys are not just stirred. They are committed for the long haul. Why do we know that? Because they actually did it. Their lives are changing. Their commitment shows because of what they do first. Take a look at verse 68, Ezra chapter 2. After they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, some of the family heads gave freewill offerings for the house of God in order to have it rebuilt on its original site. Now check this out. Check this out. They all go to Jerusalem at first. 50,000 of them. 50,000 of them. And what is the first thing they do? What do they do? They give an offering. I love that, right? Like, let's take up an offering. The pastor's like going, woo, yeah, okay. I don't want you to miss what is going on here. Before they get unpacked, before they get even settled, they go to the spot of where the temple of Solomon had been built but was destroyed. They stumble over stones, debris, there's brush growing up. Uh, They pick their way through to worship. This is powerful. And you say, how did they worship? They gave an offering. Yeah, they gave an offering. That's not worship. No, this is, this is worship. This is not the tithe. The tithe is, uh, is different from the offering. The tithe is the 10%, the first 10% of income of what God gives you. That part, God says, that's mine. That's mine. They were all doing that, but the offering is something on top of this. This stirring in their heart was so great that they wanted to put their money where their mouth was. On top of that tithe, on top of the cost of the trip, they give an offering. This is huge. Notice this wasn't everyone. uh, It was just some of the family heads. By the way, we call those people leaders. In other words, they take the lead to give before any of the rest of the people. Here's what I want you to understand. God creates leaders to lead. You go, well, duh, Paul. But some of you need to lead. That means that they go first. They show how show the other people how it's done. They obey first, and that gives the rest of the Hebrew people the way to follow. We have leaders to help us lead. And I find this very interesting, don't you? The first thing the Hebrews do once they return is to worship through 
giving. The very first thing. That's faith right there. They're going to take from their wealth that God has given them and give back to God. And that is over and above their regular tithe at 10%. First thing, now watch verse 69. It's not just the rich people that give. Verse 69 says, based on what they could give, which means every level, they gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. Ah, oh, this is cool. Before anything else they give, they're not even unpacked yet. They have not set up their tent, and yet they are giving. That's some worship right there. That's some faith right there. By the way, I don't know if you get this or not. Financial giving, giving back to God, the tithe and special offerings God stirs, uh, in, that's the basic way of worship. What I mean is that you can say what you want, you can sing, you can clap your hands, but until you let that grip go on the money, that death grip, and the resources God has given you, it's really just talk, isn't it? Because it's the deal of trusting that it's all God's money anyway. And you trust him for your future even though you don't know how it's going to come in. You trust him with your future by actually giving part of the money he's commanded back to God. And you get this, but it bears saying out loud and reminding ourselves of giving is not for God. God is not like short on cash. God's not poor in any way. So why does uh, he stir our hearts to give if he is so rich? Here it is. A step of faith is taken each time we give our tithe and offering back to God. A step of faith is taken each time we give our tithe and offering back to God. Do you get that? You get this picture of them stumbling over these broken stones and, and getting ready to, and the first thing they get, do is give. It would be good for you to write underneath this, God doesn't need us to give, but we need to give to grow our faith. That's just the truth, brothers and sisters. There's just no other way to grow spiritually like this. It's a faith statement to God that says, God, I'm not sure how I'm going to face the future financially or resource or where I'm going to live or what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to do. And God, uh, I'm taking these little steps of faith and I'm a little worried about the future. Like, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? I trust you with my family. That takes faith. It's not the only way to grow. I'm not saying that. It is a key way to grow. That's why it's so huge. Before these guys do anything else, they worship God in their giving. They are saying, we trust you. I find these words from Jesus so comforting when it comes to money and the control of it and my worry. I read these words often. This is from Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Let me just let, read these and let these words wash over you as if Jesus is speaking. Therefore, I tell 
you. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field, they don't labor and spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Let that wash over you. Knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Man, can we just have a big amen? And there's just enough trouble on its own waiting. Now that used to scare me like, what's happening, God? Do you know something I don't know? No, that's, he's just saying, look, that'll come. But you don't even have to worry about that. I've got that too. I've got that too. Let those words wash over you. Don't worry about tomorrow. You've got to understand, for these people, there was no Walmart handy. Hmm. There was no grocery store. This was a land that was desolate. These was a, this was a land where people wanted to hurt them. The people that were there were hostile. Well, let's get... Now, let that giving back to God and the tithes and the offerings begin to grow, stretch, to stir your faith and relax in God's provision. By the way, if you hadn't grown in this area and you have a ton of anxiety, this is one of those things that you can really start to grow and to take that anxiety away, let it melt away. I promise you, this is one of the best things for us, just Bibi and I as a family over the years that have grown us. Back to Ezra, uh, Ezra chapter two. So before they do anything else, they worship through giving. They give back to God. Let's look at verse 70. The priest, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the people settled in their towns and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. Now, what is this talking about? Isn't this kind of weird, like their towns and their towns? Why is this talking about? The Levite tribe, we talked about a little bit, is where the temple servants come from. All the priests are Levites, but not all the Levites are priests. They are singers. They're also gatekeepers. 
the guards of the temple, they are temple servants. Anything to do with the temple are the Levite tribes. They have their own special villages and towns God has set apart for them. So the Levites, their job is to serve at the temple, serve God. Then all of the rest of the Israelites, Judah and Benjamin, they go to their regular towns. They're mainly farmers on this. Now, last week, we skipped over this because I wanted to talk about it this week. A few minutes ago, we talked about how the leaders gave first, you remember? And they lead the ways for others to give, right? Now, look back at chapter 2 for just a minute. Go back to very first verse, verse 1 and verse 2. And let's look at the leaders, because from this point in the series on, we're going to see these leaders a lot. These now are the people of the province who came from those captive exiles. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigpha, Rehum, and Bana. Man, the names of those Hebrew leaders who returned, I want you to see, those are not all Hebrew names. In fact, they're named after the country they have been imprisoned by. They carry their history in their names. One name is, is a Persian name, Bigva. Three of the names are, are Babylonian names, Zerubbabel, Mordecai, Bilshan. Now, by the way, this is, this is not the same Mordecai from the story of Esther, although we'll see that in chapter 6. This is not that Nehemiah either from the next book over uh, that we'll study later on. Now, why talk about these names at all? This is why. God is not just in control of the big things of life. He is also sovereign even in the tiniest of all details. Some of you need to hear that. He is also sovereign even in the tiniest of all details. When we talk about God's sovereignty, when His providence, His plan, we are talking about every detail that God is working through to carry out His plan. I want you to see this. Zerubbabel, isn't that a great name? Any ladies that are expecting, use that name. That's a good one. Zerubbabel um, is the governor of the uh, province. He is Jewish, but he has this Babylonian name. It's almost like a scar on him. He is the crucial link with the Davidic dynasty. In other words, the David dynasty, King David, through him, God's promise of the Messiah is going to come. This eternal kingdom, uh, the future David, King David to be born, Jesus would be born, would come through through his bloodline. We're talking about Jesus' earthly birthline, right? Although Zerubbabel is of royal lineage, he's not the king right now. But he serves as a kind of under king, a governor, if you will, under the Persian king Cyrus. And whenever you see that name, Zerubbabel, you usually see the name Jeshua out there. He is the grandson of the last high priest of the temple before its destruction. You with me? Here's what I want you to see. Zerubbabel, as the civil ruler, 
and Jeshua as the chief priest link the reborn community of Judah with the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, if you ain't getting this, this is deep water right here. God has not forgotten his people. He was angry with them that they would not repent. So he has taken them away by this pagan empire, Babylon, and now Persia. But now God is restoring Judah and restoring his promises. Here's what I want you to see. God is faithful even when we are not. Someone say amen on that. When we don't repent of our sins as believers in Christ, sometimes he allows some pretty awful stuff to occur in our lives. Sometimes to get my attention. Sometimes to put my eyes back on him when I've looked away and I didn't even know. I look at other things that I think are important. I don't know about you, but sometimes that stuff that God has allowed me to walk through, awful pit of hell kind of stuff, has put me flat on my back. Like I cannot go any lower, and it forces me to look up and look to God. Anybody else like that? Yeah. And get this, sometimes in God's sovereignty, the suffering and the trials we go through are not even a result of our own sin sometimes. Many times they're a result of someone else's sin, someone else's battle. But check it out, that's okay. We can rest in the goodness of God, his sovereignty, or what the old people used to call providence, God's plan. We can rest in that goodness of his plan to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus no matter what our situation is. So Zerubbabel, he's the main governor. He's the main leader. Jeshua, the main priest guy, the chief priest. The go-between for the people and God. That's what a priest does. Can I just uh, show you something amazing right quick? We pointed out that Zerubbabel is the royal line of kings that Jesus would descend from, right? But the name Jeshua can also be pronounced this way, Joshua. Those two names means, mean Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation, meaning that although we turned from God and chose to sin, we were separated from God through this spiritual death. Yahweh is salvation, or Jeshua, or Joshua is this name. This is the high priest, right? You go, oh, that's neat, Paul. No, no, go with me. Another one to have this name given to him was a baby born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. His mother would be, name him the name that the angel, angel Gabriel would tell her to name him. Jesus, or how we say it with a Hebrew accent, Yeshua. That should mess you up. Do you see how everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, the Christ coming, everything? Let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Remember, he speaks to the individual and to the group. 
Jeshua, son of Jodak, Jodak, and his brothers, the priests, and along with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it. As it is written in the law of Moses, in uh, the man of God. The first few months, they are just occupied with just getting their dwellings, their houses going, like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Food, clothing, shelter, right? They needed all of that stuff. They needed defense because all of these people, what they literally had to do is get their swords out and put the women and the children in behind them in God's former ring. Like, going, bring it on. There were no walls to hide behind. These people, these groups were not happy that they were back. These non-Jewish groups, there were real danger. There was real danger of attack. There were no walls. This is why it's so interesting that as a community, the first thing that they do in the rebuilding process is to worship again. Remember how we said, we hear God as individuals, but then also as a group, remember? They had worshiped by their giving but now they want to get back to the regular cycle of daily offerings, festivals, burnt animal offerings to God, the worship that God had commanded them through Moses. But why? Couldn't it wait a little longer? Three reasons. Three feasts, or what we think of as a kind of special time of remembering that God has had his people, Israel, set aside in the past of what he has done for them and what he's going to do, even bringing them out of bondage in Egypt centuries before. Three of these feasts that come together, look at them really briefly, briefly with me. They're so cool. We'll come back and study them more in detail sometime. But I want you to understand how special this occasion was as they get ready and they build this altar even before the temple is rebuilt. Write this down. First, Feast of Remembering. That's what a feast is for. Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets, as in blow your trumpet. Jewish people call this Rosh Hashanah, which in Hebrew literally means head of the year, or what we would call kind of a New Year's Day. This day began the seventh month of the religious calendar. This feast calls together the Hebrew people, calls them. He says, come to me. God says, come to me. I want you to hear. Back when he gave the law, they would blow the trumpets. This is so cool. I've given you some scriptures you can study on your own on that in your notes. Le uh, Leviticus 23, Numbers 29, Exodus 19. This feast kicks off with trumpets blasting continuously from morning until evening. That's all it is. God calling his people. They are remembering the trumpet blast to call the people to assemble to hear the voice of God at the foot of Mount Sinai when the law was given to Moses. Second feast of remembering, feast of atonement. Feast of atonement. Jesus um, was our atonement. It's what this looks forward to. Jews call this Yom Kippur. It is the holiest day of the year in Judaism. Now, what are they atoning for? What are they atoning for? 
They're making atonement sacrifices for their personal sins and the sins of the nation. Look at this, the individual, but also the group. It's a 25-hour period of fasting and intensive prayer. Look at the third feast. Third feast of remembering, feast of shelters. I love this one. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles also. Shelters known as the Feast of Booths. Uh, It is the seventh um, and last feast that the Lord commanded them to do together on this thing. This is where Jews were to observe each year by appearing before the Lord. Everyone in the nation come to three different feasts. This was one of those feasts. The people would literally come set up shelters around the temple and live uh, as they celebrated this feast in these little huts, like tents kind of a thing. And it was meant by God to remind them, the people, that they once lived in shelters when he brought them out of bondage in Egypt and slavery across the desert. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 16, a ton of important history takes place on this date, the Feast of Shelters. For one thing, it was the time when Solomon started the temple. The temple began construction. The one that was now missing had been torn down. It will also be when they start the temple will be on this date, future we'll read about. It's also during the feast that Jesus said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We saw this all the way in Revelation 22 when we studied it. These three feasts together, boom, 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 all together. The trumpets call them together. They repent of their sin, both as individual, then as a group as a nation, and then they remember what God has done for them, and they make offerings. They worship together. This is worship, and this is huge. What Ezra is describing to us is the the first time these feasts would be observed in 70 years. Look at verse 3. They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it uh, on it to the Lord, even through the even though they feared the surrounding peoples, they were scared of the people that might attack. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed, and offered burnt offerings each day, based on the number specified by the ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions as well as the free will offerings brought to the Lord. I love this picture. You pick through the, all of the rubble. You get this picture. They set up the altar so they can worship with God. They celebrated Here's what I want you to see. Some of you, man, God has allowed some serious stuff to walk through your life. What I mean is health or financial, something maybe out of your control or maybe it was in your control, but God allowed it to happen and now your life is in ruins. 
but you have this stirring that God is calling you back, right? And you're having to walk through the rubble to get back. And you go, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. Start with worship. Communing with him. Together with all of us. Do you see how that works? They had nothing. It had been destroyed. God doesn't need stuff for us to worship. He just wants to get our attention. They celebrated God. They worshiped God together. You remember how we said that we hear God as both the group and as the individual. This is the reason I lean so hard on you as your pastor to not miss church on Sundays. We worship individually and as families, and that's good, and we should do that. But God calls us to worship together. There's something so powerful when we come together and rely on both uh, God, but all of us individually worshiping together. We repent of our sins individually, and we repent of them as a nation, as a group, as a body. And we celebrate what God has done and what he's going to do. So they get the altar ready, right? They have to do that before anything else can be done. Check out verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, it's actually going backwards now, back to the first of these feasts, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They gave money to the stonecutters and artisans and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre. Here's what's happening. They're taking the money they have and they're going to Home Depot. Okay, they didn't really have Home Depot. They had Lowe's. They go to Lowe's. Now they go to these people that could give them timber, all the resources. They're actually taking action, taking steps of faith with their money. So they would bring the cedar and wood from Lebanon, that's in the north, to Joppa by the sea. They would float it down according to the authorization given them by King Cyrus of Persia in the second month of the second year after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem. Notice that they're calling it God's house. And there is no house. Isn't that interesting? It's just rubble. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from captivity. They began to build. I love this. They appointed the Levites who were 20 years old or more to supervise the work of the Lord's house. Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah and of the uh, Judah and of Hinnadad with their sons and brothers and the Levites joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. They pulled the trigger. They did it. 
They took the journey. They observed what they had heard God stir in their spirit. They began to prepare. They start their communion with God through worship. Next week, we're going to see what that actually meant. You're going to see that next level of what the construction looks like. Let me take just a moment to close our time. We begin... Uh, we began with two questions, right? One, will you act when you sense God is stirring you, telling you to do something or go somewhere? So I answer that. Just for you. Notice God's listening. And two, until the opportunity to do it arrives, Will you work on everything that you can work on to prepare for the move of God? It's like the, the farmer, he can prepare the fields and he can plant the seeds, but he has to wait on God for the rain. So here's what I know. God does not call you to salvation in Jesus for no reason. You, my friends, were made for a specific purpose in a specific time. Your address, your hair color, your DNA, where you live, what you do, your family members. Let me tell you, even if your parents told you they were planning on having you, you were a surprise. You were no surprise to God. You were literally molded by God, the creator of the universe for this life that you are called to right now. And listen to me, you were called to be a part of this family, this church right now. You were created for this point in time for a purpose. I can't wait to see what God is going to do through you as individuals. But when God brings individuals that are sold out, that will say yes to both those questions, to see what he does with the collection, the group, of all of us together. It's going to be powerful. Let's pray. Mm. Heavenly Father, as we are celebrating 10 years, God, I look back at my own life and the life of us as a body. Times that we've done good things, but our eyes were not on the things we needed to have it on you. God, I'm sorry for that. Sorry for my own life when I have made idols out of things that I thought were important, but they weren't. But God, we celebrate because even when we've made the wrong decisions, you still love us. God, you've brought success to this church and at times you've brought suffering. God, you have brought life. You called us together. And God, you have refined us. As you just continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like you just to pray to God And tell him, if you sense a stirring in your heart, you sense what he is saying. I mean, you can pray a couple of things with this. God, 
continue that stirring. Tell me what you want me to do. And then tell God, are you open to do what he is calling you to do? You just pray those things. Is he calling you to repent of sin? Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian and you're, you're looking at this thing going, God, are you stirring something in me? Like, there is a real God. So just respond. Say, I'll follow you, Jesus. Let Jesus' death on the cross pay for your sins. Become a Christian. Become a Christ follower today. Then the second thing I want you to pray and answer to God is this. God, until that time comes that you want me to act on something, will you help me to prepare? Prepare my life. And listen to me. This kind of prayer is one of the hardest. Because you're simply saying, God, I'm ready to go and do this thing for you, but I'll wait here until you're ready for me. But I'll do everything I can. Will you pray that? Will you say yes to God? Just tell him. Now here's the deal. God has called you. You've said yes. You're waiting for the time to go or do whatever he's called you to do. Now, watch for the time. Watch the opportunity because it's coming. Will it be to plug in? I mean, really plug in and be a part of this church? Maybe God's calling you to mission work. Maybe he's calling you to start a Bible study at school or work. What is he calling you to? Just end your prayer like this. God, I'm ready to see you move. I'm ready to take action. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to not be afraid. It's in Jesus' precious name we all prayed and said, Amen.